Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Exiles, Irish Famine Emigrants. This is the first episode of what will be three or four podcasts which look at what is probably the greatest legacy of the Great Irish Famine, that is, emigration. Between 1845 and 1851, well over one million Irish people left this island desperate to escape the Great Hunger. This exodus of refugees transformed the Great Famine from an Irish crisis into a global phenomenon. So it's fitting that this episode opens with a story from the city of Montreal in the 1870s. After this, we will look at the sheer scale of the flight from hunger which took place during the Great Famine by focusing in on the story of the English port of Liverpool. Then to conclude, I'm going to look at some individual Irish emigrants, people you'll never have heard of before, but who will help us understand how people escaped Ireland in the late 1840s, who they were, and will debunk some myths along the way. In coming episodes, I will look in greater detail about the experiences of Irish emigrants when they landed in Britain, North America and Australia. As always, I'm deeply indebted to the patrons of this podcast. Patrons are listeners just like you who support the show at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. When you become a patron, you get episode guides, exclusive monthly podcasts and early access to the show. For example, last week I released a patrons only podcast on a woman called Jane Cullen, who I spent over a month researching. This is completely new research unavailable elsewhere. Listeners who become patrons also get a shout out in the series and today I want to thank Morris Liston, Dennis McCarthy, Roxanne O'Loughlin, Angela Everett, Brad King, Mark Egan, Jack Nixon, Emily Zimmer, Tobias Markowitz and Sean Kenny. Thanks a lot folks, your support really means a lot. During the summer of 1877, the Canadian city of Montreal was rocked by riots. 
in mid-July, parades and marches held to commemorate a late 17th century battle had erupted into serious clashes. Two people had been killed, the first a 16-year-old labourer killed by militiamen brought into the city to preserve order, the second shot during the course of a riot on July 12th. Unsurprisingly, as the anniversary approached in the following year of 1878, there was good reason to expect a repeat of the same violence. With preparations underway to mark this 200-year-old battle, Montreal grew increasingly tense. When the mayor took precautions by banning the gatherings and parades in question, this had little effect. Organisers announced they would go ahead regardless and the mayor even received death threats. Life in the city was increasingly consumed by the looming threat of violence. The army announced 5,000 soldiers were on standby and could be brought into Montreal if needed. Economic life was hard hit as merchants refused to send goods to a city they feared was about to erupt into major violence. While clerics appealed for calm, the police raided numerous buildings looking for weapons. As the sun rose on July the 12th, the day the parades were due to take place, Montreal held its breath. While marchers were flooding into the city from as far away as Quebec, over 200 kilometres up the St. Lawrence River, counter-protesters were also mobilising in large numbers. Somewhat remarkably though, the day passed off without any major incident. Now when I say major incident, I mean that no one was murdered. Localised rioting did break out and buildings were damaged. However, the contentious march itself did not take place, given the sheer numbers of police blocking the route. You're probably wondering at this point how a 200-year-old battle could cause emotions to run so high or what it has to do with the history of the Great Famine. Now strangely, the battle in question did not take place in Montreal or even Canada. It does, however, reveal a hell of a lot about the scale of emigration from Ireland to North America in the decades prior to the 1870s. The contentious battle in question had in fact taken place on July the 12th, 1690, along the banks of the Boyne River in Ireland, when King William of Orange defeated King James II. While it had no bearing on North America, it was a seminal moment which copper-fastened Protestant domination of Ireland and was seen as a defining moment for Catholics who increasingly became second-class citizens in the decades following this battle. Since the 1790s, commemorations organised by a group called the Orange Order, named after William of Orange, were deeply provocative sectarian parades designed to symbolise Protestant domination over Catholics in Ireland. As they tapped into long-running grievances, they frequently resulted in violence. This, however, doesn't explain why the battle could bring a Canadian city, known more for its French culture than anything else, to a standstill in the 1870s. The answer is essentially the Great Famine. From 1846 onwards, the scale of Irish emigration is truly breathtaking, and Montreal is just one example. In the 1870s, the population of Montreal stood at 107,000 people, and nearly 20,000 of them had been born in Ireland. Many of these were recent emigrants, arrived since the famine, and they were largely poor Catholics. But when they arrived into Montreal, they found some scenes all too familiar. These impoverished, largely Catholic, famine emigrants were not the first Irish people to arrive in Montreal. Prior to the Great Famine, there had been a constant flow of emigrants from Ireland to North America. 
However, these tended to come from Protestant backgrounds. The Orange Order, which organised the parades to mark the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, had been established in Montreal long before the famine, and their contentious celebrations became increasingly violent and fraught after the arrival of large numbers of Catholics, for whom these parades represented discrimination. That such long-running tensions with roots in Ireland could cause major upheaval in North America was not unique to Montreal, though, by the 1870s. Further down the east coast of the Americas, Irish emigrants had been arriving in even larger numbers in New York. Like Montreal, the city had a well-established Irish community of about 97,000 before the famine. However, during the Great Hunger, this was transformed By 1855, one in three New Yorkers were Irish-born. By the early 1870s, parades around the 12th of July had frequently resulted in major riots in the city. The very fact that Irish political and sectarian tensions could be relevant in North American cities shows just how many people were on the move during and after the Great Famine. However, these individual cases of North American cities don't give us the full picture. To understand exactly what was happening, we need to come closer to Ireland. The experience of Liverpool, a major port in the northeast of England, gives us some sense of the scale of what had begun to unfold in Ireland after 1845. In 1845, the city of Liverpool, like New York and Montreal, had a well-established Irish community. Its proximity to Dublin had seen large numbers of emigrants looking for work travel to the city. By 1845, around 50,000 Irish people had settled in Liverpool and they comprised about 17% of the city's population. They had also spread beyond the confines of Liverpool itself, moving to the surrounding districts in search of work. Nearby Manchester, an industrial city located 50 miles to the west, had a well-established slum known as Little Ireland long before the famine. However, these communities were utterly transformed and ultimately dwarfed by the emigration that took place after 1845. Liverpool was also a major embarkation point for transatlantic voyages. So Irish famine emigrants hoping to reach North America began to flood into the city. While Irish people had begun to leave the island in increasing numbers as famine conditions escalated, it was really only after the failure of the harvest in 1846 and the horrific conditions in the early months of the following year, known as Black 47, that saw this develop into enormous proportions. On March 8, 1847, a letter to the Cork Examiner stated that emigrants were, and I quote, actually running away from fever and hunger and disease. Liverpool, where most of these people were running to, initially at least, was overwhelmed. From the early months of 1847, the numbers arriving in the port were in biblical proportions. In just four months, from January the 13th to April the 13th, 1847, 119,054 men, women and children arrived in Liverpool from Ireland. The population of the city was scarcely double this. The conditions they found in Liverpool and the surrounding region was abominable. Indeed, they were little better than they would have been back in Ireland. This report of the conditions facing famine emigrants in Manchester could easily have been written about Dublin, Cork or any city in Ireland. In a house, number 13 Cayley Street, which consists of only two very small rooms, 
Five families, 22 persons in all, were found in the greatest distress. One was dead in the house, another lying sick of fever, from which several others were slowly recovering. The neighbours state that many of them had no food since the morning of the day before. Back in the city of Liverpool itself, where thousands were arriving several days a week, the city was completely inundated. The newspaper The Liverpool Mercury was calling for Irish people to be removed from early 1847 onwards, fearing that if they were not, the city would be converted into skibbereen on a large scale and a lazar house such as England has never had within its borders since the days of the Great Plague. Disease was already making ground in the port. The same publication reported, Fever is making progress. This alarming increase is no doubt to be attributed to the large influx of Irish poor who crowd together in the most unhealthy districts of the town, rendering streets and courts before noted for their unhealthy conditions still more unhealthy. Soon, scenes were indeed reminiscent of Skibbereen, the town in West Cork which had become notorious in late 1846 for the famine conditions that prevailed there. The Times newspaper reported from Liverpool in the summer of 1847, The dead are taken by relatives to the workhouse cemetery at all hours of the day, sometimes at night, in coffins, sometimes nailed together, sometimes not, and if the gates happen to be closed, they are left outside or put over the wall. In that year of 1847, the number of pauper deaths in Liverpool increased by 5,000. The vast majority of these were famine refugees from Ireland. Despite the horrific conditions and the fact that 15,000 people were deported back to Ireland in 1847 alone, this had little impact given the sheer weight of numbers arriving. The Great Famine Exodus had begun and there was almost nothing that could be done to stop it. No matter what they faced in Liverpool or Manchester or wherever they went, emigration offered hope to Irish famine victims, something utterly lacking back home. In the five years between 1846 and 1851, somewhere in the region of 1,250,000 Irish people, that's around one-sixth of the entire population of the island, passed through the port of Liverpool, escaping the Great Famine. It's worth taking a moment to let that staggering figure of 1.25 million people sink in. While the majority of these people continued on their journeys, boarding ships to cross the Atlantic, many did remain behind and by 1851 the population of the port had increased by over 30%, most of them Irish. Overall, the Irish-born population of Britain had increased from 417,000 to 727,000 by the end of the famine in the early 1850s. This figure, however, nowhere near accounts for the 1.25 million people who had arrived in Liverpool because most of them had sought lives elsewhere. In coming shows, I will look at the fate of these people who continued on to North America as well as those who went to Australia and other parts of Britain. But now, after having some sense of the scale of emigration that was underway, I want to look at a few individuals because their experiences were not the same and not what we might expect them to be either. But first, I want to take a quick break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Irish history. Strange as it sounds, the most common stereotype of Irish famine emigrants was something of a rarity. There is a common misconception of utterly impoverished people on the verge of starvation who get on boats to escape the famine. Most famine emigrants, though, did not fit into this stereotype. Emigration in the 1840s as it does now, cost money, and those who were completely destitute clearly could not afford the expenses involved. The fares were substantial enough. The cheapest tickets to Liverpool could, depending on the season, be as expensive as five shillings or sixty pence. The cheapest fare to North America, which carried the passenger to Canada, was fifty shillings or six hundred pence, while a ticket to the USA was seventy shillings or over eight hundred pence. To contextualise this, we can look at the cost of survival in Ireland. During the winter of 1846-47, to those working on the public work schemes received around 8 pence a day, a sum that was generally not considered enough to feed a family. Given many could not scrape together this amount of money, a ticket to Liverpool costing nearly 10 times as much was beyond their reach. Therefore, many of those in the worst affected areas along the west coast could not emigrate, not because they didn't want to, but simply because they couldn't afford to. In these regions where emigration was lower than other parts of the island, death rates tended to be high. 
Likewise, at the other end of the scale, emigration during the Great Famine was unsurprisingly less likely to come from the wealthier east of the island, where the impact of the Great Famine was not as extreme, so the factors pushing those to emigrate wasn't as great. This leaves a belt roughly in the middle of the country, where most, but not all, famine emigrants came from. These were communities that were hard hit by the Great Famine, but the population could still scrape together enough money to emigrate. This often involved selling literally everything they owned, meaning that they were more or less destitute on arrival in Liverpool or the USA, but this was a risk worth taking. The case of one Roscommon woman, Anne Nolan, explains this well. In May 1849, Anne Nolan arrived in Dublin with six children, one of the thousands of emigrants hoping to escape Ireland through the port. On arriving in the city, she made her way to the Knight Asylum on Bow Street, in what was then the notorious slum of St. Mickens. Described as where infected people crowded together, the asylum was very much a last resort for the poor in Dublin. There was no food or facilities provided and people had to sleep on the floor. There was no beds. It was designed to provide shelter and nothing else for the homeless in the city. When Anne Nolan arrived at the door with her six children, she looked desperate and was admitted Indeed, Mrs. Craig, the wife of the keeper, even broke the rules and gave them food. However, during the course of her stay, Mrs. Craig heard the rustle of coins on the seemingly impoverished woman. Craig inquired what it was, and when Anne Nolan said she had but a few pennies, Mrs. Craig insisted, in accordance with the regulations of the institution, that the coins had to be handed over for the duration of her stay. Anne Nolan resolutely refused to do this. Craig eventually searched her and found 21 sovereigns, 7 shillings in silver and 13 pence. This was a huge sum of money that amounted to over 400 shillings. The keeper of the night asylum, a Mr Craig, was suspicious about how Anne Nolan, who was described as looking wretched, could have possibly come into a sum of money so large and assumed she had stolen it. He had her arrested and taken before the courts the next day where she was questioned before a judge. Anne, it turned out, had reared her family with her husband on a 10-acre farm, which was, for the time, a relatively sizeable holding, certainly putting the Nolans in a far more stable position than many of her contemporaries. Her husband, however, had died in late February 1847, leaving her with six children, the eldest of which was only 13. With no means of sowing a crop for the following harvest, she had little option other than emigration she sold everything she had down to the farm implements they owned. From the sale of these items, she gained the pretty sizable sum of money she had when she arrived in Dublin. However, she still needed every last penny to get her and her family to America, which effectively left them destitute. The story was verified by her eldest son and the judge on hearing this released her and allowed her to go on her way. What ultimately happened to her is unknown, And while we cannot say that Anne Nolan's story is representative of all emigrants, it is revealing. Like Anne Nolan, the vast majority of Irish famine emigrants were not completely destitute when starting out. Otherwise, they could never have even afforded to think of emigrating. However, that said, there were ways in which the truly desperate could escape Ireland. While some might beg, borrow or steal to get the money, there was three more structured ways to get a fair paid for by someone else. The first two options were what were called assisted emigration schemes, while the third was a far more risky strategy. And next we will hear the stories of people who took these options.
the last installment of the series, and indeed in episode 10, I covered what was the first way the truly desperate with no money could emigrate. This is emigration schemes privately funded by landlords. This was often the cheapest and indeed safest way for landlords to rid themselves of their poor tenants. The most famous of these schemes was the one carried out by the Strokestown landlord Dennis Mann, which is covered in the last episode. Overall though, assisted emigration schemes organised privately by landlords accounted for no more than about 5% of all famine emigration. An even smaller number of desperate people secured passage out of Ireland on another scheme introduced by the British government. From 1848 to 1850, the government oversaw, although did not pay for, 4,000 Irish orphan girls to be sent to Australia where they could start new lives. These orphans were young women and although they were supposed to be aged between 14 and 18, some were as old as 22. The way the orphans were chosen though was not a fair playing field and as was so often the case during the Great Famine, those most in need of escaping Ireland were unable to avail of it. While numbers were limited to a few thousand, the planners also sought to choose people they considered to be the best of the Irish poor to help build an ideal colony in Australia. Therefore, no one who had committed a crime was allowed to travel and candidates also had to be able to read and write. The English civil servant Charles Trevelyan, who was continually interfering in Irish affairs, also demanded that Protestants be chosen above Catholics as he believed them to have better moral teachings. These considerations, combined with the fact that local poor law unions had to pay for the girls to travel to Plymouth, England, from where they would board ships to Australia, limited the effectiveness of the programme as a famine relief measure. The areas worst affected by the famine in the west of Ireland tended to have high levels of illiteracy and there was a higher percentage of the population who were Catholic and this meant they were less likely to be accepted into the programme. Nonetheless, thousands of Irish women and girls were shipped to Australia in the later years of the Great Famine. Their experiences were mixed, but some at least received better treatment than most emigrants. For example, when one group of orphans boarded ships in Dublin to travel to Plymouth, the captain gave them a roast beef dinner on hearing who they were. Among the first group of Irish girls shipped to Australia was Ellen McFarlane from Cookstown, County Tyrone, aged only 14, and she was joined by her sister Elizabeth, as both their parents were dead. Their experiences give us some insight into those who participated in the orphan scheme. Life in Australia for these women was almost undoubtedly better than the one they had left behind, even aside from the risks of remaining in Irish workhouses, which were ravaged by a cholera epidemic in 1849, the opportunities Australia offered were better, even though the women were usually viewed as a source of cheap labour. Wages were generally higher and prospects far better than the impoverishment that waited for them outside the workhouse door in Ireland. The final group who could escape famine even if they were impoverished are the most interesting. These were a group of people who committed crimes in the hope of being transported to Australia where they would serve sentences in prison colonies before being released. This was, as we will see after the break, a very dangerous strategy though. Over the past year, we've been on a journey in this podcast series exploring the history of the Great Famine. But nothing can replace seeing where this history played out, walking through the same buildings our ancestors did. Therefore, I'm really delighted to launch my new walking tour, where I can now bring you through the streets of Dublin, detailing the story of the Great Famine 
in those same streets where these events played out. While you can find out more at DublinFamineTour.ie, this is basically a multimedia journey into the 1840s. I will bring you into the heart of what was Victorian Dublin and we will venture through what were some of the worst slums in the British Empire, through military compounds to prisons and the site of the city workhouse. This walking tour is unique though because while I am explaining the story of the Great Famine and there to answer your questions, there's also a bonus added feature. Each person has a listening device while on the tour. So while I'm explaining the story of the Great Famine, as we walk through the city, you'll be able to hear the sounds of Victorian Dublin and hear accounts written by Dubliners in the 1840s performed by actors. It's an experience where you hear, see and immerse yourself in the past for two hours. This tour is unlike anything you'll have been on before. Basically, it's kind of like a live podcast where you're in an audience of just 20 people. Because I use radio devices, places are strictly limited to 20 people per tour. I'll be running three tours each week on Thursday, Friday and Saturday afternoons at 3pm and tickets cost just €17. You can book your place online at DublinFamineTour.ie That's DublinFamineTour.ie Also, if you're planning a trip to Dublin any time between now and the end of September, guarantee your place by booking now at DublinFamineTour.ie The first tour is on St. Patrick's weekend, so I hope to see some of you then. The last group of extremely desperate people who managed to escape the Great Famine without having to pay the cost of emigration chose a far more dangerous strategy. This was to commit a crime in the hope that they would be sentenced to transportation which would see them sent to a prison colony overseas and far from Ireland. This in some cases involved being as blatant as carrying out a crime, waiting at the scene to be caught and then in some cases pleading not guilty which left the judge no grounds to hand down a lenient sentence. The aim, after all, was to secure the harshest sentence, which was transportation. For example, in 1849, the 17-year-old Dominic Ginnelly from Clare Island was brought up on charges of stealing hemp and rope and found guilty. He told the assistant barrister at his trial, Mark O'Shaughnessy, that if he was not transported, he would simply repeat the crime until he was. Perhaps even more informative though is the case of two young women, Margaret Hestian and Mary Walsh from Bala, also in County Mayo. Aged 20 and 18 respectively, the women were desperate to escape Ireland by 1849. Margaret Hestian had already robbed clothes the previous year, but in April 1849 she, along with Mary Walsh, robbed two heifers and a cow. The two, however, wanted to be caught and transported. However, when asked by Mark O'Shaughnessy, the barrister, if they knew what transportation meant and involved, they informed him they didn't, but that anything would be preferable to their lives in Ireland. Like Ginnelly, before them, they informed O'Shaughnessy that they would rob again if they were not transported. The two women did in fact receive seven years' transportation each. They were moved to the Grange Gorman's female penitentiary in April 1849, where they were held for two months. They were then transferred to the prison ship Australasia and their long voyage to Tasmania began. Now this strategy could be very risky. For example, given that some clearly did not really understand the process of transportation, they were probably unaware that transportation for men to Australia had stopped between 1846 and 1848. Instead, the convicts were now being shipped to the tiny island of Bermuda 
off the east coast of the United States. There, they were held in prison hulks off the coast and forced to work in the construction of Navy shipyards. This was probably as bad as remaining in Ireland. However, the story of the two Mayo women, Margaret Hestian and Mary Walsh, was somewhat better. They spent most of their sentences working on farms in Tasmania. Mary Walsh, described as being quiet, was a good prisoner and secured her release in 1853. She remained in Tasmania and married a man called George Moore. Margaret Hestian found submitting to prison life somewhat more of a challenge. She received six weeks hard labour in 1851 for disorderly behaviour. She was also married, in her case, to an individual called Robert Steele and was released in 1852. Overall though, the numbers who escaped the famine using this method was probably no more than a few hundred. This story brings this episode to an end. It is only the beginning of what is a complex story of emigration during the Great Hunger. In the next episode, we will look at what life in Canada in particular was like. In the following episode, we will be looking at the United States. Until then, Sloan. And don't forget, you can get those amazing offers from deborkarearbooks.com forward slash podcast. That's deborkarearbooks.com forward slash podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.